as he looked upon the images, though he had seen many of them before in smaller scale, his heart sank and he felt horrified. One of the greatest evils of the modern era was the Nazi Holocaust of the 1940s, still within living memory, in which nine million innocent civilians were murdered, six million of them simply because they were Jewish. John Lennox is a professor of mathematics at Oxford University, and he tells a story about touring Eastern Europe and meeting a Jewish woman from South Africa. The woman told Lennox that she was researching how her relatives had perished in this Holocaust. At one point on their guided tour, they passed a display that had the following words written on it, Arbeit macht frei, or work makes free. It was a mock-up of the main gate to the Nazi death camp at Auschwitz. And the display had pictures, photographs of the horrific medical experiments carried out on children by the infamous Dr. Joseph Mengele. At that point of the tour, the Jewish woman turned to Lennox and asked, and what does your religion make of this? Lennox writes, what was I to say? She had lost her parents and many relatives in the Holocaust. I could scarcely bear to look at the Mengele photographs because the sheer horror of imagining my own children suffering such a fate, I had nothing in my life that remotely paralleled the horror that her family had endured. The question of suffering, not the academic, logical question, but the real question, the far more personal question, the experience of suffering is something that Christ's earliest followers would have known very, very well, the shame of suffering, the unanswered tears, the cries of anguish. On top of all the normal griefs of this life, there were tearful farewells, disease, isolation, difficult marriages, heartbreak, these things we all experience, and yet those early Christians lived in an age in which scarcely half of children survived to adulthood, and on top of that, the early Christians faced persecution for their faith, not just from governments, but from their own families, from their own synagogues, from their own communities. They lost their jobs, their careers, often their very life. They were a people who were acquainted with grief. The early Christians would have felt great pressure to defend their faith or perhaps to abandon it. If defending it, the pressure would be to make their faith look good, make it look strong, competent, respectable, believable. And no one faced these threats more than the Christian leaders, the pastors, the apostles, the prophets, the deacons and deaconesses who led the early church. No one faced the threats more than those responsible to lead, to be upfront and visible. And from a worldly perspective, you might expect that these Christian leaders would want to look competent and respectable in order to maintain their influence over the church and to hold back persecution. They, they would face exceptional pressures. They would be singled out for arrest and for abuse. And, and in all of that, you can imagine their own feelings of abandonment. Have I been abandoned by God to my suffering? Does God even love me? Does he care? We're going to read an account recorded in all three synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all go out of their way to include this narrative account 
and, and, and from a worldly perspective in a first century context, it kind of doesn't make sense that they would include this account because it contains information that would have been highly embarrassing and would have made those early Christian leaders look bad. And yet they include it and even promote it. This is Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 25. It's the account of Jesus in the garden named Gethsemane. Jesus asked them, his disciples, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Well, nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he said. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. And on reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He threw about a stone's throw beyond them, or he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. What do we see here? We see here uh, what would have been for church leaders an embarrassing account that many would hold against the early Christians. So why include an account like this? I mean, Jesus is here presented as weak, as vacillating, and as needy. We read that he knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. We read that he was in anguish. We read that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Notice how this contrasts with Jesus as he is described elsewhere. This is the same Jesus who, who drove money changers out of the temple. This is the Jesus who could speak a few words and raise the dead and restore sight to the blind who made the lame to walk. This is the same Jesus who, who preached and left people amazed at his authority. And most of all, this was Jesus who was there for everybody else who had never asked anybody for anything but had forgiven sin, given compassion to those who were hurting, was tender with those who were caught in sin, and who brought deliverance to those who were in bondage. And then we look at Gethsemane. And having brought so much blessing to so many people for the first time here, Jesus has needs. He needs somebody to be there with him. He has real, deep, emotional needs. He needs somebody at his side because he's not sure if he can face this alone. And, and, and the man who is there for everyone else when his hour of need comes, of course, his disciples abandon him in, in his weakness. They fall asleep. Uh, look at what we see here. Jesus is physically weak, but, but more so he's emotionally weak. He is in anguish. Most folks don't want a leader who's in anguish. 
hey, let's go find that movement that has the anguished leadership and join it. I want to hitch my car to an anguished engine. You know, it seems like there's this dark cloud in Gethsemane that is settled over Jesus. The cup he has to drink is preoccupying him here. He's asking the Father to change his mind, but he's submitting to the Father's will. He doesn't want to do what they've always planned that he would do. He's checking to see whether there's still a way out, and when he doesn't get the answer he wants, we know from the parallel accounts in the other Gospels, he goes back a second time and asks, and when he still doesn't get the answer, he goes back a third time and asks. You know, this doesn't build confidence in leadership from a worldly perspective. Matthew even fleshes it out more where Jesus, we record Jesus saying, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus was overwhelmed. As in, this is more than he can handle. It's a cloud of darkness and perhaps despair. Jesus, for the first time, we see him despairing in prayer. Everywhere else you see Jesus delighting in prayer, communing with the Father, coming out of his prayer with joy and hope and strength and delight. So what's going on here? And Jesus was facing being rejected by God. That's why he, for the first time, needed the comfort of an angel. He wasn't afraid of dying. He, wasn't, he was afraid of losing the Father. He was experiencing losing the Father's favor. He was already beginning to take up our sin. He was already, uh, uh, the Father was already turning his back on the Son. Jesus was already, had been abandoned by his disciples, and next he's going to be abandoned by the Father, culminating with that cry upon the cross in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, put yourself in the shoes of the early Christians facing a hostile world, this account could be greatly damaging to the new religion's image. By the time Luke published this account, probably around the 60s AD, they were already facing temptation that Jesus is here warning them about, the temptation to fall away, to return to Judaism uh, or, or paganism, wherever they came from. It's, it's how Jesus starts this passage by warning of that temptation. It's how he ends it. And compare Jesus here to the Roman ideal of leadership. You know, the great leader doesn't waver. It's fermitas. He shows, doesn't show weakness. He doesn't second-guess himself. He's driven. He's firm and unshakable. You know, the, the Roman general Lucius was, uh, you know, he authorized the brutal sacking of 70 towns in the kingdom of Epirus, and he enslaved 150 thousand people and on his return to Rome he was celebrated with huge triumphal parades in which the Senate awarded him the title Macedonicus. That's a hero, that's a leader who takes prisoners, who's confident. But here we see Jesus emotionally weak, troubled, second-guessing, looking to see if there's a way out. Um, realize that this passage was thrown in the face of the early Christians. Uh, in the late 2nd century, uh, uh, Celsus uh, uh, wrote the earliest known treatise against the Christian faith. And he cited this very scene in order to assault the doctrine of Christ's divinity. He wrote, uh, why, does the sh why does he shriek and lament and pray to escape fear of destruction, speaking thus, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me? You know, Celsus is he sees Jesus as inconsistent. 
as cowardly from a Roman perspective, as weak rather than proclaiming the message he was given. His depiction here was seen as cowardly and without honor. It was disgraceful and shameful from a Roman perspective. And, and this wasn't the only embarrassing content in the Gospels. Uh, you know, Jesus dies by crucifixion, which is something that in Roman circles, polite company did ne never mentioned. It was so shameful a death. And then at the account of the resurrection, we see the first eyewitnesses were, were women, uh, which in first century antiquity, you know, a woman's uh, uh, testimony was not valued very highly in a court of law, and yet it was women that we have to learn about the resurrection from. You know, they, they, this testimony would have uh, uh, been a liability for the early Christians and indeed for many centuries. Why would the early Christians have recorded such embarrassments? These records could only hurt their credibility before a pagan audience or before a Jewish audience, and it makes their leaders look really bad, looks, looks, makes them look less than Roman. The gospel writers make all sorts of editorial decisions. Why not just edit out Gethsemane? Why not throw in one of Jesus' I am statements instead? Uh, the only reason that they would have allowed this account to be written down is if it was actually true. If it actually happened exactly this way, and if their priority was to give full disclosure about Jesus Christ, who he was and what he did for us. If they felt burdened to write down what actually happened, uh, you know, if they were gonna make it up, they would have made men the witnesses of the resurrection, not women. They would have had you know, the Christian leaders all look really strong and triumphant, but, uh, but instead we've got this. And this account was embarrassing for the early church's leaders as well. I mean, look at the disciples here. They look pretty bad. And this was written at a time when they were the apostles. They were the top of the totem pole. I mean, Peter was the leading voice in the early church. This content could not have been placed in any of the gospels without his permission. And yet, you know, you would think as the leader of a religious movement that's facing great tensions both inside and outside, you would think Peter would want to make himself look strong. He would make sure the account makes Peter look to be the one that Jesus really trusts, that Jesus really relies on, the solid leadership. But instead, Peter looks horrible. I mean, you know, Peter, James, and John valued their sleep too much to sit with Jesus in his one hour of need. Uh, there was one thing required of them, and it's what they did not do. Jesus had already told Peter that he was going to deny him three times. He had previously called Peter Satan. I mean, how would you feel if Jesus called Greg Johnson Satan? You know, it doesn't look good for leaders, uh, you know. And then after this, they all run away and flee. You know, looking at the job description of an apostle, you really can't get much less competent than these men. I mean, they're, they're horrible. And it's not the only time we see this sort of thing in the gospel records. Um, you know, Jesus calls his apostles oligopistoi, which is Greek for little faith ones. Oh, you of little faith, are you still unbelieving? Well, that makes that looks great on a resume. Jesus said, I'm unbelieving. You know, so why would Christian leaders put this in here except Peter as leader of the church, by the time these accounts were written down, something had happened in Peter and in these other apostles that had changed them. By the time the gospel was written down, Peter no longer felt he needed to look competent. 
He no longer needed to look strong. Same with the other apostles. They could have shaped the message in a way to make them look competent and strong and, and, and like good leaders, but they didn't need that. They didn't need to look like good leaders. What made them free to own their failings and to do so in the most public way possible by having their failings recorded in the Bible, not in one gospel, but four of them. But they had experienced Jesus. And as they grew to know Jesus, they lost their need to fake it. They lost their need to pretend. They no longer had to look good. They no longer had to, you know, project confidence. They no longer had to justify themselves. They no longer had to measure up. They no longer had anything to prove. They were sinners saved by Jesus, by grace alone. Christ had rescued them, and that was enough. And they could be honest about needing rescue, ongoing rescue, about being normal, marginally competent sinners loved by Jesus Christ. That was enough, even as leaders. We all have this built-in drive to justify our existence, to make our lives matter. I, I feel a need to prove that I am someone. And there are a thousand and, way, um, and one ways that we try to justify our existence. For some, it's through your career, or it may be through your relationships, or through your family. Look at my family. Through your wealth, look where I can afford to live. Through, you know, having, you know gone viral on Facebook or Instagram, being wildly successful, looking clever and insightful, being very sophisticated, having the perfect house, the perfect yard, the perfect body, the perfect physical appearance, the perfect clothes, the perfect degrees, all up on the wall in your office. Uh, and it's a never-ending treadmill that you have to keep running nonstop to prove that you're good enough, that you're smart enough, that you're competent enough to justify your existence. And if you keep running on that treadmill, eventually you get tired and it sucks you in and destroys you. What can get you off the treadmill? What got Peter and James and John off that treadmill except that Jesus had justified them? He had taken his resume having fed the 5,000 and always did what pleased the Father and he gave it to you and he gave it to them so that you now have Jesus' righteousness. You know, only the gospel can validate us in such a way that we no longer feel a need to validate ourselves. These disciples no longer needed to be powerful. Remember earlier when they were arguing over who was going to sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand? They no longer needed power. They were okay being weak being human, being normal sinners who dropped the ball, who weren't able to stand with Jesus in his hour of need because Jesus did something and it changed them. Jesus led them in a way that changed how they led. They didn't need to be the strong leaders. They could become self-forgetful. I've read about Chick-fil-A CEO Dan Cathy, who um, he and, a, and an acquaintance were... Um, going on a tour of new restaurants that were under construction. And along the way after the tour, they were filthy. They were just covered in dirt and sweat and construction dust. So they darted into a Taco Bell, that's the competition, next door to clean themselves up in the restroom. And the acquaintance was stepping back out of the men's room. And he stopped and watched as Dan Cathy pulls out a wad of paper towels from the dispenser. And he starts cleaning and polishing the sinks and wiping down all of the toilets. This was the CEO of Chick-fil-A in the competitor's dirty restroom. But he didn't think how it might make him look. He didn't care. He was self-forgetful. He just saw a restroom that needed attention, and so he cleaned it. 
And it didn't matter that it was Taco Bell, the competition's restroom. And it didn't matter that he was a CEO. He didn't need to look powerful. He wasn't trying to justify himself. He was just trying to do what needed to be done because he had forgotten about himself in the equation. That's what the gospel does. It validates us so that we don't need to do that ourselves. And by the time Luke wrote these words, these leaders felt safe, looking incompetent and weak because they knew Jesus was their competence. Jesus was their strength. They could have full disclosure of their failings, even publicly, and yet be accepted by God. So how does that happen? Well, we have to understand what was happening in Gethsemane that made these Christian leaders not only willing to record what would have been an embarrassing account before the watching pagan world, but eager to include it because it was so essential to their message. Realize what this cup is that Jesus is saying he doesn't want to drink. This was not the fear of dying. Lots of people got crucified through the centuries. The Romans were experts at it. There is something more that Jesus was facing, something far more troubling that was coming down the pike. What was the cup? Uh, the Hebrew prophets had come to use the cup as a metaphor for the wrath of God against all human evil. For example, Isaiah 54, you will drink the cup of God's fury and you will stagger. The cup is described in the book of Revelation as the cup of God's wrath that is filled with the wine of his fury. The cup Jesus was facing, the cup that he would soon drink and drink down to the dregs would be the, 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 the cup of God's fury. His opposition is wrath against all human sin and cruelty and hate and betrayal and rebellion. This is the great exchange already starting in the garden. The great exchange says that, that I, as a human being, have spent 50 years sinning night and day. You know, the greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, all your soul. You know, 16th, 16th of your strength. I haven't done that for 10 seconds and neither of you. We don't need to fool anybody. Uh, so I've been committing what Jesus calls the greatest sin against the greatest commandment 24-7 for half a century. Jesus, meanwhile, for 30-some years always did what pleased the Father, um, meriting honor and praise and blessing as one who, who uh, was altogether righteous and worthy. And in the great exchange where God takes him who has no sin and, and, and he becomes sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, the great exchange is that all of my sin gets transferred to Jesus on the cross. And even here, he's already taking it up. And he's absorbing all of my sin and bearing all of your sin and paying the penalty for it, paying it in full, drinking the cup of God's wrath, which is filled with his fury, drinking it down to the dregs so that if you are in Christ, there is not one drop left for you. Your judgment day has passed from the future into the past and was finished at Calvary. And yet the other half of the great exchange is Jesus' righteousness and worthy and honor of blessing is transferred to you when you trust in him as your savior such that you fed the 5,000. You always did what pleased the father. You raised Lazarus from the dead. Everything Jesus is and was, you united to Jesus. Now bear that so that the Bible says you are righteous before God, worthy. Forgiveness says you can go now, but righteousness, God is saying you can come. Jesus 
in Gethsemane and on the cross was already experiencing hell. The father was saying to Jesus, Jesus, you can have all these followers of yours, but there's going to be hell to pay. And Jesus is saying, give me hell. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath filled with the wine of his fury. It's why Jesus is weeping in the garden. It's why he is crying out to the Father and hearing nothing in return. He's already losing his relationship with the Father. He is already feeling the coldness approach. He is holding the cup of God's wrath. He is weighing his love for you, and he's lifting that cup and opening his lips and pouring it, tilting it inward. And as he went to the cross, he drank it to the dregs and licked the cup to absorb it all. Tim Keller says this. He says, it was in the Garden of Gethsemane that I came finally to grips. I made my peace, as it were, with the notion of God's wrath. Now, it might shock some of you that a preacher was struggling with the very idea of a God of wrath, a God who sends people to hell. And then it was studying the Garden of Gethsemane when I finally came to peace with it because I realized this. The reason why we want to get rid of wrath and hell is because we want a loving God. We say, I can't believe in hell and and wrath because I want a more loving God. And, And it's there I came to realize in the Garden of Gethsemane that if you get rid of the idea of God's wrath and judgment, you have a less loving God. Because if there is no wrath by God against sin. And there's no such thing as hell or separation from God. Not only does that actually make what happened to Jesus inexplicable, Jesus staggering the way he is, asking God, is there any other way, sweating blood, it means that that he was wimpier than his hundreds of followers who gladly went to their death if there's nothing like God's wrath going on here. But the main thing is, if you don't believe in wrath and hell, It trivializes what Jesus has done here. If you get rid of a God who has wrath and hell, you've got a God who loves us in general, but that's not as loving as the God of the Bible, the God we see in Jesus Christ who loves us with a costly love. Look at what it cost. Look what Jesus did. Look what he was taking for your sake. You get rid of wrath and hell, he's not taking anything close to this. And therefore, what you've done is you've just turned Jesus' incredible act of love into something very trivial and very small. And if the anticipation of these sufferings, if the very taste of these sufferings sent the Son of God into shock in Gethsemane, what must it have been to drink it down to the bottom? This is why the early church leaders included Gethsemane in all three synoptic gospels, because this is the gospel. This is the only hope we have in the face of suffering and a hardship and persecution and death that Jesus loved you and drank the cup that was intended for you so that by his death you would have the certainty of eternal life with God forever. It's a leader risking himself in order to save those who who didn't deserve it. And that's what Jesus did for you. God's wrath and fury at our cruelty and rebellion were heading our way because of our rebellion against him and our sins were finally going to catch up with us and the judgment of them was barreling toward us with a fierceness we could have never imagined and then you were sitting there guilty and without hope, unable to move, unable to escape and the Son of God took note of you and he 
his heart reached out to you and he felt pity for you and compassion and, and tenderness. He felt kindness. He felt empathy for you and he did what he had taught us to do. He loved us when we were his enemies. Jesus did so at the cost of his life, but what's more, he took the full force of the blow. This wasn't an impulse decision. It was something he and the Father had settled beforehand. He even wept in that garden as the Father turned his back on him instead of you. You see, the Bible says, at just the right time when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does this mean for you who believe? You know, when we're suffering, when hardship comes, and sometimes it comes and it's one thing after another after another, and you feel you can't even get up for, for a gasp of air. You feel like you're drowning. And when you're drowning, you think, goes through our hearts, God, why are you letting this happen to me? Do you love me? Do you care? And a voice might say in your heart, God doesn't see you, and he doesn't love you, and he doesn't care. And of all the possible reasons why we go through what we go through. And the Bible doesn't tell us why specifically we go through the suffering we go through. But all, all the possible reasons, that is the one reason that, that Jesus here rules out. Because here, on his knees, bleeding tears of blood, already experiencing our abandonment, the isolation, the rejection, the scourging, the whips, the forsakenness. Here we see God a God who enters into our suffering and does so to the fullest extent possible, a God who chooses to suffer in order to rescue his loved ones, a God who chooses pain and grief and sorrow and rejection, a God who could have walked away but who did not, a God who suffered alongside us, indeed not even alongside us, for we would not sit up with him even for that night. But here we see a God of love who takes the most intense evil and injustice and cruelty and absorbs it all for our sake and drinks into his soul the just wrath and justice of God as well, doing it for our sake because in our tears and our pain and our suffering, God our Father actually sees us and loves us and will never leave us. As John Lennox was looking at those images of the Nazi Holocaust, this Jewish woman asked, and what does your religion make of this? What was I to say, he writes. She had lost her parents, and I could scarcely look at these images imagining my own children facing a similar fate. But still, she stood in the doorway waiting for an answer I eventually said, I would not insult your memory of your parents by offering you simplistic answers to your question. What is more, I have young children, and I cannot even bear to think how I might react if anything were to happen to them, even if it were far short of the evil that Mengoa did. I have no easy answers, but I do have what for me at least, is a doorway into an answer. What is it? She asked. 
I said, you know that I am a Christian. And that means that I believe that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Messiah. I also believe that he was God incarnate, come into our world as Savior, which is what the name Yeshua means, the Lord saves. Now I know that this is even more difficult for you to accept. Nevertheless, just think about this question. If Yeshua was really God, as I believe he was, what was God doing on a cross? Could it be that God begins just here to meet our heartbreaks by demonstrating that he did not remain distant from our human suffering, but became part of it himself? For me, this is the beginning of hope, and it's a living hope that cannot be smashed by the enemy of death. The story does not end in the darkness of the cross. Yeshua conquered death. He rose from the dead. And one day, as the final judge, he will assess everything in absolute fairness, righteousness, and mercy. There was silence. She was standing, arms outstretched, forming a motionless cross in the doorway. And after a moment, with tears in her eyes, very quietly but audibly, she said, Why has no one ever told me about my Messiah before? A God who not only sees the cruelty and the hate in the human heart, the evil that we do against one another since the beginning of our human story, but a God who enters into that evil story and becomes the ultimate victim, the ultimate act of injustice, humans snuffing out the life of God himself as if it did not matter. And yet God submitted that freely and willingly and lovingly because he loves you. Let's pray.